Hi, this is Bob Murphy, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome, everybody, to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. I'm Doug Stewart of the Libertarian Christian Institute, and today we have a special guest, Pete Enns, who is an author, biblical scholar, and professor of biblical studies at Eastern University in Pennsylvania. Pete has been through his own interesting and sometimes controversial journey over the years, and through his work has helped many Christians wrestle with the Bible's complexities while trying to maintain faithfulness to God. Pete formerly taught at a well-known evangelical seminary for over a decade until his book, Inspiration and Incarnation, set off a firestorm that changed the trajectory of his life and his career forever. Over the years, he has come under fire from a number of evangelicals due to his hermeneutic method and approach to the scriptures. Sometimes, Pete, I think you've been accused of even questioning God himself. You know, the irony is, if that's your goal, to deny the Bible, it seems like you're wasting your career devoted to understanding it for all it's worth. Wouldn't you have just given up and maybe tried out for the Yankees? Yeah, well, that would have been the plan, but, you know, you have to be good. Yeah, and my, anybody can do theology. You have to be good to be a baseball player, right? <laughs> right. Well, you know, maybe making the cut for the Yankees would be, you know, imminently easier than pleasing any of your critics. <laughs> well, that's okay. But, you know, anytime you talk about God, you're going to be criticized, and that's fine. And, um, yeah, you know, I, I just it's just the way it is. Whatever. You know, you can choose to listen to critics, and maybe they have something of value to say, but— you know, they don't always, and that's okay. I took a seminary class in, from you in 2006, I believe, and of of all the things I'm sure you said, I remember two things. <laughs> One was, it's a long time ago, I can, I, can, <laughs> I can whittle it down to what I remembered. One was you said that the apostles who wrote the New Testament, really, you weren't too happy with them getting sort of some special pass uh, as authors for their I think you called it a creative handling of Old Testament passages. That was one thing. Yeah. Second thing was you kind of threatened my eternal destiny. You said if having correct doctrine gets you into heaven, Jesus and you are going to be pretty lonely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I, no, I, I know, <laughs> and I know you were joking, but you know, it's it that tenor of the class kind of stuck with me, and until now, even my life was a, for a while about having the right doctrine, getting things set in stone before moving on to things that are less important, like you know, loving your neighbor. Or something. Right. Um, so, you know, you kind of left me with, well, can't have perfect doctrine, then, well, where do we go from there? Yeah. Well, I mean, before you said, this connects to something you said when you uh, introduced me about how, you know, some people even question, say, say that I'm questioning God, right? But I am, in a sense, and that there's biblical precedent for that, too, of people questioning what is God up to, what is he doing, why is he doing what he's doing? And, um, so, you know, I think that's that's part of the deal that we have to work through this with honesty where our experience is taken seriously. And, yeah, that, that means sometimes questioning things that at some point we might have thought were not in need of question or just out of the bounds of any sort of questioning. That happens, you know, and, and again, I think that's a normal part of the life of faith. What do you think of the accusation people make that, you know, the serpent in the garden was questioning, was having Adam and Eve doubt God? I, I know that one of your biggest critics has given you a little hassle by saying that you're questioning God. Hath God said? Yeah. 
Yeah, that's sort of the go-to line. It's sort of like that sounds like Hitler. It's the same kind of rebuttal. It's a standard rebuttal that that sounds like the serpent in the garden doubting God. But I, I would only say that, okay, if that's the case, you have to level that same accusation against half the Psalms hmm. or against Ecclesiastes or Job. Clearly, clearly, unambiguously, you can't use Genesis chapter 3 to say you should never doubt anything the Bible says because biblical authors do. And also, it's very often not just simply the Bible says, but it's the theological layers of interpretation over that that people expect you to accept as well, right? Yeah. And you know, we could get into the Genesis 3 story, what that's even doing and what the servant might have meant by that in the story, but it doesn't mean you are not allowed to struggle with your theology. You're not allowed to struggle with your experience of God. That's not what it's saying. Yeah, and I, that's a more tenuous argument, hath God said, than, you know, you could come back with, yeah, but God named the entire nation of Israel after Jacob right. wrestling with God. It's <laughs> a little yeah. bit stronger uh, point. Right, right. And, you know, whether that's supposed to be a condemnation of Israel, because, you know, their name, you know, sort of in Hebrew means, you know, striving with God or you have has striven with God or something like that. You know, I don't know if that's really a condemnation of Israel as a people. I think it's Israel writing yeah. their story and acknowledging that part of their whole process of faith as a nation through time is one that hasn't done very well. And is it is striving with God on various levels, whether it's a struggle to obey or it's a struggle with God's absence, but both of which are prominent partners in Israel's journey. Yeah, I think that line of approach has given a lot of people permission to relax a little bit when either, one, reading the Bible or relaxing into not having to have, well, what does that mean? That's they, They're unsettled by what they read, whether it's things like the violent passages or just weird things um, mm -hmm. it, that they read in the Bible. You, you've given people a lot of permission. I think it was Rachel Held Evans once I don't know if she said this with, you know, interviewing you, and I felt exactly the same way. I'm like, why didn't you write some of these books 10 years ago that we could have had when we were wrestling through this? Because <laughs> we didn't have, we didn't, yeah, I know, right? Um, come on, <laughs> get get on with 2027. Get with a program, Pete, come on. Yeah. What? It's all about you. Yeah, yeah. we had to wrestle. <laughs> we, it's all about me. Uh, we had to wrestle with, you know, all those things. And then it's like, okay, well, I think I'm good with that. Oh, now Pete comes out with a book yeah. about. Well, I mean, can I, can I answer why? Sure. Uh, it's, it's simply because I think we all have to go through our process in time. And, you know, that wasn't my time. That was 10 years ago. I mean, from now, 2017, I was already probably a couple years into seeing the need to rethink some things. Mm. And, but that takes time and different people, it hits them at different times in their lives. And I'm just glad that it hit me at some point in my life. And, you know, you have to, you have to be ready for it. In other words, it isn't something that can, I think I will now, you know, question the foundations of my faith. I'll do that before lunch. And then after lunch, I'll go <laughs> cut the grass. Yeah. It just, it's something that just happens to you. You don't really have a choice. Yeah. And with me, it was just, it was a process that happened at a certain point in time. And, and I just, you know, I do what I do. I wrote about it, you know, whether mm -hmm. blogging or books, it's just, I, that's just how I process this stuff. What were some of the key origination, like the seminal moments of your ability to question some foundations? Well, I mean, not to sound like a jerk about it, but <laughs> I think a lot of it was just reading the Bible and, 
you know, just as a, as a trained biblical scholar, I'm trained to read texts closely. But even not reading them that closely, you can see that it's just not working the way it's sort of always presumed it should work in a lot of at least iterations of the Christian faith that I'm aware of and familiar with. And just that alone is something that just makes you take a step back and say, okay, what is, well, the questions I love asking and still ask and always will ask, what is the Bible anyway? And what do we do with it? You know, Richard Dawkins is, you know, suppose I I actually read this online where um, he was doing like a Q and a kind of thing. And someone asked him, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm becoming an atheist. Can you give me some good books to read? And he said, yeah, the Bible. (laughs) <laughs> you know, which is true. I mean, if you have a biblicistic view of Scripture, that view will be undermined by your reading of the text. But for some people, that's all they have. That's that's how they equate the Christian faith, was essentially some sort of literalistic, historicistic, biblicistic way of reading that the Bible itself deconstructs. So for me, that was that was a big thing. But it was also, you know, life experiences the way it is with many people, both at home and at, at work where I was teaching. And I talk about that in The Sin of Certainty at some length, that, you know, all these things combined sort of took away my, the illusion of control that I had in these two quadrants of my life, whether home or school, whether family or profession. And it just sort of drove me to a a place I had never explored before, which is actually letting go of the need to know and trying to rest in God and trust in God daily, which is very, very hard, but I don't think we have a choice. That's just the way it is. So more time with the Bible gave you that permission. Yeah, basically. Yeah. I even went to a conservative college, uh, Bible college, and one of my professors said, you know, if you read the Bible over and over, it's going to really challenge your theology. Right. And good, for, good for him. What's he doing now? Mm, that I don't know. It's been a little too long. <laughs> I think he's still teaching at a, a similar school, probably maybe not the same one. I'm honestly not sure. And I honestly think, Doug, that a lot of, you know, biblical professors or theology professors at many, let's say, mainstream evangelical Christian colleges or seminaries, they understand exactly what we're saying. It's just hard to say it because your job's on the line. And I get that too. And, you know, if it weren't for me being sort of released from prison, so to speak, and and really being able to look at the world differently, you know, without that, I don't know where, I, where I'd be. I don't know what I'd be saying. I don't know what I'd be thinking. I mean, I, I'm a lot more content now than I was 10 years ago. I'm a lot more relaxed, you know, permission to to think honestly and not think that God's going to hit you over the head with a sledgehammer. You can't see me nodding my head here. Uh, no, I can't because this, right, this is this is the podcast, Doug. You can't see a thing. <laughs> I don't know if you're new at this, but yeah. you can't actually see people. Right. I'm sitting here nodding, taking it in a little bit. <laughs> Uh, you've been writing over the years, part of your journey and you did, you, you're right in the sin of certainty, you were a little bit more transparent with your personal journey than in previous books. Your, your new venture is a podcast, the Bible for normal people. Right. Where did this originate? What, you know, was it prompted by people saying, Hey, you need to do a podcast or we can't wait for all your books to come out. 
every two years or whatever. Um, and are you sending some sort of hidden message to everyone who already has the Bible figured out, like they're abnormal? <laughs> well, no, actually, <laughs> normal people are people who don't like do this for a living. You know, the, the, the kinds of people I like writing to or communicating with, which are, you know, people who go to church or used to go to church. But they don't sit around and study Bible or theology all the time. And and that's th- those are normal people. Those are people I enjoy talking with. Abnormal people are people like me and you, you know, who have a background, who have an education, let's say, or maybe some people with a lot of, you know, ministerial experience have been at it for 20, 30 years. Th- those are different. Co- that's a certain subset of the Christian world. Or it's like so our I'm, hobby. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's our hobby. Uh, Yeah, that's just it. You know, if it's if it's something more you're interested in, but even if you're not, if you used to be really interested, but you sort of maybe even like left the church or something. I mean, those those are normal people, too. That's a normal experience for people to have. And those are the ones that I want to talk with. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's those terms are sometimes misunderstood. But I try to be clear what I mean by that. So over the long run, do you have some, um, I don't know what to call it, agenda with the podcast, but do you have some sort of theme or intent that, you know, let's say 100 episodes from now, you can look back and say, yeah, I've, I've accomplished what I set out to do. Not that you'd stop at 100, but yeah. No, I don't. Uh, you know, Jared Bias and I, we, we, who we, you know, we're both hosting the podcast. And by the way, that's you know what you asked before about how I got into this. I, I guess I've been sort of thinking about it in the background for a while, but not not seriously. But a couple of people, my, uh, what, my agent and also Jared, sort of said separately, you ought to do a podcast. And so we started talking about it and. You know, the more we plotted out what we wanted to do, it got really interesting. And and we've recorded what as at the date that we're recording this, Doug, uh, we've we have about 13 or 14 episodes already recorded and uh, they'll be airing through the summer and into the fall of uh, 2017. So we're sort of ahead of the game. But, you know, I realize how much it's enjoyable. It's actually fun. It's it's so much different than writing. It's easier. I can talk for hours, just put a mic in front of me, it doesn't matter. And talking with people and asking them questions is fun because they have an experience that I don't have. And, you know, everybody's enriched by listening to these people. And we ask them questions about, you know, different topics that surround the Bible, but not, you know, about the Bible specifically necessarily. Like, what do you think of these verses? Or tell me your theory of inspiration. Some people do talk about that, but we have topics like science and faith. Uh, you know, Jewish expressions of what the Bible is and how it works, you know, the, the Bible and, and the mainline church, which always gets into things like faith. It's not it doesn't just stay with the Bible, you know, but as far as an agenda goes, as far as that goes, I don't I don't have one other than let's just keep having some interesting things to talk about and having some interesting people on the show. That's all. I don't really have a goal beyond that. It's just like this is just something we do to talk about issues that that uh, Jared and I feel are important. And, and you know, we'll just run that and see how long it goes. Well, I know that I've been, I've benefited from it already. And it's what, I think episode four just launched the day here we're recording. Uh, six. Yeah, actually, we're up to six. Now. Six. Oh, wow. Yes. All right. Um, okay, good. Six, six episodes. I've, I've listened to everyone. So uh, I'm, wait, I was way to be into it, Doug. Way to be on top of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got to keep track of it with my own podcast here. Good point. Yes, <laughs> keep, I know. keep my yeah. numbers higher than yours. <laughs> Good. <laughs> what What is some of the things like you, you say you're talking to people and they ask questions and, you know, whether you're I'm 
in uh, class or whatever. Are there particular issues lately that have really, you know, you're just like, oh, I'm so glad they asked that because I really like to talk about this. Oh, <laughs> uh, I like to talk about a lot of stuff. Uh, one thing is other than the Yankees, yeah, the Yankees, but uh, you know, science and evolution are something that's sort of big. Uh, God's violence—that's a big issue. Uh, these things keep coming back. Uh, why bother with this Christian faith at all? It's sort of weird, and there are a lot of other religions out there. Those are things that come up a lot, and those are things that I think people of faith who are trying to follow Jesus need to talk about. They need to keep talking about these things because they're not going away. And unfortunately, it's usually hard to do that in certain settings because you get ostracized or people question you or, or doubt your commitment to Jesus and all that sort of thing. And, you know, that's just uh, nothing could be further from the truth. It's, it's because they're committed that they feel this pressing need to address some of these pressing topics. You know, so that th those those are a few. There are others, but you know, it's it's like the same ones keep coming up. I I could talk about inerrancy, which is really about the nature of inspiration and what the Bible is, and science. I could talk about those two things probably for the next five years, and it wouldn't get old for people. Yeah, so you're just gonna have to keep talking until you convince everyone else, uh, you know, to agree with you, right? <laughs> Well, here's It'll the take thing. longer than five years, probably. I don't care. I mean, I, you know, this yeah. is not about convincing people. I know you're just kidding. It's not about convincing people to leave where they are. It's about giving people who are already thinking about these things a space to do it in. You know, I did, yeah. my, my goal is not to recreate the universe in my image. Hmm. I mean, who wouldn't? <laughs> I think we're all sort of doing something like that. Sure. We want to. We want ourselves to live forever and to sort of stay out there, so we keep yeah. talking. But, you know, that's not really what this is about. It's not to convince people that I'm right. It's to allow people to have those discussions to begin with. And that alone is something that's really worth it for me to be doing this because that's, you know, the feedback I get from people on a regular basis from, you know, whether messages or emails or comments is, you know, they just feel a sense of relief. Mm-hmm. First of all, to know that there are other people out there who think the way they do, that they're not crazy the way they've been told, or they're not apostate, or you know Jesus is mad at them and God's going to come crashing down on them. They're actually pretty normal. But they're also being given concepts and vocabulary around which to sort of articulate these ideas that they already have. And that's a very comforting thing. When you... You know, speaking about having conversations with people, obviously not all of these people are telling you it's a relief. I'm sure you get your share of disagreements. And even from scholars who are equally as smart as you are, I, I often wonder, you know, people that I disagree with, we're kind of on the same like plane in a way where our, our hobby is theology and we can, you know, kind of duke it out or, or debate it and so forth. But you went through a lot more <laughs> trying times uh, for for kind of standing up or uh, being free to wrestle with with everything, what what has that taught you about how to disagree with others, especially when you know you're not the professor and they're the student, you know, and you're mm -hmm. kind of more I want to say more intelligent. That's that's not the right way to put it, but where it, there's you're kind of equals with people, and these people are scholars too, and they're just as committed to Jesus as you are. You got to learn how to disagree, and at some point you have to part ways, which happened. Mm -hmm. But what have what have you learned about disagreeing with others, um, and maybe even from others? Well, it's a, there's a big difference, first of all, with 
you know, if the people you disagree with have power over you, which usually translates in our culture to people who sign your paycheck. That's a very different thing than people who are, let's say, knowledgeable about things and disagree, but they're also not ideologues where they have to be right. They just see things differently. I say, well, maybe I need to revisit that. And that's that's the conversation that happens, that should happen at least in the pursuit of theology. You, you listen to people and you change your mind if need be and, and overhaul some things or maybe push some things even further. I think that that's a good thing. That's why disagreement and, and diversity of points of view are very, very important. But if that's a power thing, if people are holding something over you, uh, who, you know, I have to say, you know, at least in my experience, some of the people who have power over me, they had no idea of the world that I work in, of the study of the Bible. You know, there were theologians or church historians, and it's just, it was a foreign language to them. And that was very clear to me that we don't even, we're not even on the same page in terms of what concepts are important to be talking about. They just wanted you inside the boundaries of what they were comfortable with. And that's exactly what they said, and not just to me, but to others. You know, I, I remember talking with one colleague at uh, a meeting and uh, talking about Genesis 1 or Genesis 2. And and I said, well, that's he expressed his point of view, somewhat of a, somewhat of a literal approach. And I said, well, that's interesting, but how do you account for things like ancient Near Eastern mythology and, you know, the Enuma Elish, Atra Hazus epic or Gilgamesh epic or Adapa epic? I mean, name them, they go on and on. And, you know, how, how do you sort of bring them together since they're similar in ways? And his answer was point blank. Well, I don't have to do that. You do. But I'm here to make sure you remain orthodox. Wow. Right. Exactly. So, I mean, that's why th- that kind of uh, disagreement is not one that's going to lead to further light. It's only going to generate heat. And that's very different from some who really just disagree but are – you know, there's a humility there about knowing that they may not know everything and they want to talk. I mean, I have fun talking to people like that. And a lot of it comes across in my website, my blog. You know, I have people who disagree, who post comments. And oftentimes, you know, almost all the time with you know, leaving the trolls out of the picture, you know, um, you know, these are these are smart people. You know, and degree or no degree, it doesn't matter. They're just, they've thought about the stuff. They've read a lot and and they're always insightful comments. And I, I think that's a good thing for me and for others who are participating in that kind of conversation. It can't just be an echo chamber. Yeah. It well, just can't. You know, and if, if you're alive at all, it isn't. It never is. <laughs> you know, there's always somebody out there who's got an opinion. Well, and sometimes not having a degree, uh, not having a degree, might mean a more insightful remark or feedback because they're not ha- they don't have to be couched in the in the you know sort of terminology of the in- right. of the industry so to speak. Exactly right, yeah. and, and there's a freshness even where uh, let's say I mean I hate to put it this way non-professionals because I don't like even the term thinking of yeah. myself as a professional anything when it comes to God, but you know what I mean. Uh, you know when you think of I mean some of the insights of. Of modern biblical scholarship, for example, uh, were instigated, at least some of them were instigated by people who are doing this on the side, you know, and and they're just insightful, sensitive readers of the Bible. And they started asking questions that maybe they didn't know they weren't supposed to ask, which is different than something like 
you know, the sciences, for example, which are very technical and you, you really do need training and practice and you need a certain level of expertise to comment on pretty much any scientific matter you want to talk about. I think biblical studies is a little bit different. There is a technicality to it. I mean, the languages help a lot, but you don't have to know them to say something of insight. Uh, and, and you can read a lot. You can read what theologians say and you can read what biblical scholars say and pick up an awful lot and, and really learn that way. And, and, and that, then you can enter into a conversation, let's say more knowledgeably, with something to cover uh, um, and something to add rather. And, you know, that's I see that a lot. And it's I think it's fantastic. You don't have to have a higher degree in Bible to be competent and to say something that is of value. You know, you mentioned <clears throat> having your having your, your bosses be the ones that are sort of the gatekeepers and, you know, where their job is to keep you, you know, orthodox. And, you know, that kind of reminded me that, you know, orthodox to whom? I often will, you know, I hear people say, you know, well, the plain reading of the scripture is this. Well, plain to whom? To us? To to them? You know, right. what does that mean? What does the word orthodox mean? And now it's pretty common to hear the word heretic label thrown around. And so, and, you know, it just applies to virtually anyone who's rocked the boat even a little bit in evangelicalism or, yeah. or you know, I don't know. I, that's kind of my world, so I can't say how that affects others. But, you know everybody's a heretic to someone else's theology. Well, that's true. But, you know, traditionally, heresy is defined as a rejection of the patristic creeds. Yeah. Um, you know, do you have any thoughts on what constitutes legitimate heresy uh, that would place someone outside of outside of the Christian faith? Well, I mean, that's, that's not something that really affected me, at least. I can say that. I, I was never called a heretic. I mean, online occasionally, but, you know, when I left Westminster Seminary, that way there's never, a world that's not online that counts. Can you believe that? Yeah. Wow. I know the world of books, but, uh, you know, I, I was never, that word was never used, but the word was more like outside of the bounds of the tradition. So that's really the issue. But the thing is, you know, it, Somebody's heretic is somebody else's orthodox person. Well, that applies to traditions, too, because traditions are diverse, no matter what we think. And, you know, the, the tradition that I was a part of, you know, a Calvinist tradition coming out of Westminster Seminary and Princeton Seminary in the 19th century, there are different, there are competing articulations of what that tradition even is. And some of those, some of those articulations are very... Uh, let's say more conservative, others are more progressive. And what you found at Westminster is what you find in many, many, many schools of a similar ilk, you know, a, a conservative pedigree, but now we're moving in different directions. You have the same dynamic happening in those kinds of schools, which is essentially a battle over who gets to define the narrative, what the tradition actually is. And I think that's universal. And those issues mean I guess, you know, it's no surprise for me to, to say that traditions, I think, are meant to develop and change and evolve. They can't stay the way they are because all traditions are culturally rooted. Even if we think they're not, they absolutely are because we're just people. And this is a second order kind of theology. We're trying to articulate things in our time and in our place, but times and places change. Right. And you wouldn't say something exactly the same way in the 1920s 
as you might say, after the Holocaust or after the moon landing. Mm-hmm. You know, it just our world changes the way we look at it, and it's imperceptible. And different generations rise up who are not asking the same questions that people did in the 1920s. They're not. And so what do you do with theology then? Well, one option, and this is the option that Westminster Seminary took, one option is basically the questions of the 1920s are the pertinent and important questions. And other questions that don't sort of fit into that are not as important or they're marginalized. You know, I, I asked uh, one colleague once, and by the way, this isn't bashing on Westminster. It's just, I mean, I have these experiences that other yeah. people have had too, so I'll just talk about it a little bit. But I asked one colleague um, about, you know, New Testament scholarship and and some things that uh, were said by the Westminster faculty in the 20s and 30s. And I said, well, you know, ever since the Dead Sea Scrolls have come to light, it sort of changes issues X and Y. It doesn't matter what the issues are. And, uh, you know, I was told, no, they don't. That doesn't change anything, right? So what do you say to that, right? I mean, what do you say about, you know, the necessity of Adam being the first human being in light of the mapping of the human genome and evolutionary biology? We know things today that were not known, especially in the 1920s when you had the scope monkey trial that was going crazy, right? And how that affected how people thought. So as culture changes, you cannot help but sort of hold your theology with conviction, but still loosely with humility to know we may not have been right on every point. We need to think differently. That was pretty much my agenda there and also the agenda of, I'd say, the majority of the faculty there as well. And I think that's a healthy position to take. It, it is a position where you look through a glass dimly and you don't see everything but you're doing your best to serve and follow Jesus here. It's not about maintaining older articulations of the faith as if they are somehow dropped down out of heaven. They are also culturally conditioned and therefore must be critiqued. It's not even an option. You have to go back with a critical view and say what here is worth preserving, what is worth developing, what is worth changing, what's worth abandoning. A tradition doesn't survive without that, in my opinion. You can't stay the same. I wrote this paper um, at the request of uh, the president back in, when I was still at Westminster uh, to be given to the board. Uh, and it was uh, basically I compared Westminster Seminary. And again, this goes for any school like this uh, to the New York Yankees, who else would do that but me. Um, and some of my colleagues quipped that might have been the best reason why I left because that's Philly's <laughs> country, not Yankees country. But <clears throat> but basically I said, you know, it, the Yankees have had a, a long record of success that started in the 1920s when Westminster started and it hasn't changed. And the reason why it hasn't changed is because the game has developed, the game has changed and the Yankees changed right along with it. And it's not the same. You, I mean, Babe Ruth for all his, you know, incredible ability would not be successful in today's game playing the way that he played. And for one thing, his bat was too heavy. You can't swing a 48 ounce tree trunk, you know, and get around on a 95 mile an hour, you know, tailing fastball or a 90 mile an hour slider that just drops off the table. They didn't have those pitches back then. So what do you do? You have to adjust, you have to change. Uniforms change, you know, the playing field changes, rules have changed significantly over the past hundred years in baseball. So, you know, how, how do you be, how do you keep being the Yankees 
Well, it's not by stubbornly saying we're going to do exactly what we did in 1923. You're going to change. And I think theology and all of life works the same way. We're just people. You know, and, and, and what you lose is the sense of like complete rock solid certainty about what you believe and where it's all going. But, you, but I think that's part of the, the issue. You have to be willing to let go of those things and see what is ahead, which means actually trusting God instead of your theology. I think what people might want to know after hearing what you just said is like, is there a point where there's a too far? Because that one, it's risky to do that on on the one hand, because there is a sense in which you can decide to not be a Christian. I mean, people actually sure. leave, leave the faith, and hopefully some of them will return back. But is there a point where it's too far? Because I think there's that danger. You know, there's the Bible verse. Um, you know, contend you know for the faith once delivered, and don't be carried around by every wind of doctrine. And so there's these sort of warning passages in the epistles that we probably should take heed. But mm-hmm. you know, where, where's is there a boundary? I mean, there has to the boundary may be wider than Westminster's boundary, but it, there's surely a boundary somewhere. Yeah. Well, I know I think there is, but I think rather than I guess at this point in my life. I'm not trying to outline what are those boundaries. I think that's, first of all, a community engagement to make those kinds of decisions. And I do think, see, here's the thing. I do think that the traditions that we want to be a part of, those boundaries have to be respected. Right. So, I mean, my, my issue going back to Westminster, my issue there was not they had boundaries. They should have none. The issue there was who gets to define what the boundaries even are. Right. Right. But all traditions have boundaries. And I think it's wise and good to say, listen, this this is our identity. Here's where we're coming from. Here's what's important to us. And we want to have people around us that sort of understand that and and and, and want to support it. Which, again, is my point that the real battle at Westminster was not between who's orthodox and who's not. It's about who gets to define the narrative, who Mm. gets to define what that tradition is, right? So, in other words, my my point is that I think traditions and boundaries are inevitable and important, right? But I think we're living in a world where so many people have had the boundaries beaten down on top of them that they equate the truth of the Christian faith with the maintenance of those boundaries. And so the kinds of discussions I have with people are not really wrapped up with, well, okay, let's talk about stuff, but we're not going to go here, 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 or here. I think actually for an authentic faith, you have to be willing to go anywhere and question any boundary, including the existence of God. If God is real, God can handle it. And and you don't question it because, hey, I'm going to be really – um, you know, sexy about this and really cutting edge. And, you know, some people use this as sort of an excuse to sort of be goofy, but I'm talking about people who actually really have those kinds of questions. And to tell people like that, that's a boundary you may not cross. As I've heard it said to people, you may not question the existence of God in this classroom. Well, then where do I do it? (laughs) Or in church, you cannot articulate your deep you want to be a part of the community, but you can't just let go the cognitive dissonance that you feel. Where do these people go? See, to me, that's a much more important and interesting question right now than what is the boundary as what are we going to do with the people who are thrown on our laps, who are 
themselves a product of when they were born and where they were born and what their experiences are in the modern Western world. Well, and there needs to be a community, a type of community that allows those kind of questions because people are, if, if that's, if they're in, if their heart is leaning toward the entertaining the thought of the non-existence of God, um, it's going to go there regardless eventually. But if it doesn't go there while holding hands with people who are well or okay with that and can walk with you, mm-hmm. then it's, they may never leave, they may leave and never come back. That's exactly right. And one thing that has been very enlightening to me over the years is, uh, I did this survey on my website a few years ago, which made it into the sin of certainty. And I asked, what are two or three things that make it difficult for you to stay Christian? And one thing that people mentioned, which surprised me was, I had like five of them, but one of them was how they were treated by other Christians, which didn't make any sense to me at first. But the more I thought about it, I said, my goodness, this makes perfect sense. How you experience God is in and through other people. And I think that's a very biblical notion. You know, First John 4, you know, no one has ever seen God, but if we want, love one another, God is sort of in our midst. It, it, it's a way of experiencing the presence of God is how the community treats each other. So if you have people in church who are not just like, you know, willingly troublemakers, but they're people really processing difficult things for whatever reason. And you tell them you can't, you can't be a part of our group if you think X, Y, and Z. Well, I think the only option they have to maintain any sort of personal integrity is to leave the group. And I would even go so far as to say this. I think God wants them to leave the group, leave the group. Right. Because, I mean, if I don't think God wants us to just play a game. Right. I hope that's not what this is about. Right. And, and there's a you see, there's a fine line, Doug, between respecting the group and wanting to, let's say, submit yourself to the group as a whole. And sort of turning off your mind and being mindless and just going along with things on autopilot. And I think people have to navigate when they're crossing that line of, I respect the group, I want to be a part of it. Maybe I'll remove myself from some of the more public things right now. I probably need to do that. But I do want to respect the group. There's something about this place here where I still sort of experience God. And it's important to me. I want to keep doing it. You know, rather than the people who are just, you know, I want to be sort of a trendy atheist or something, and I'm going to make the rest of the church feel my pain, you know, and yeah. and I want I want to sort of show them how dumb they are for not thinking like I am. That's a different kind of person entirely. I'm not talking yeah. about people like that. That's not the humble person truly wrestling. They're trying to poke sticks at people. You know, it, maybe it's you know it's probably out of their own pain, whatever they're experiencing. Right, right. And uh, you know, so they they want to invite other people, you know, in the misery. They want to create themselves and other people. Yeah, I think I went through a phase a little bit like that. I know, think we all do. We want people to be in it with us, which I guess testifies to what you're saying. You need people to to walk with you. There needs to right. be a community, and even if you do it a wrong, the wrong way, it's attention seeking. I guess it's sort of like the toddler who needs attention. You know, they'll do it and you're like, oh, well, they just need to have some time to, you know, with somebody who loves them and can walk with them uh, through through a difficult matter. Right. Yeah. So we are the Libertarian Christian Institute. And so I'm going to turn this a little bit on to politics. Um, And you don't really talk 
extremely directly about politics in the way that, say, Walter Brueggemann does or Brian McLaren does. And I really appreciate that because to some extent, I feel like what you have to say about what the Bible says and how do we interpret the Bible, it has political implications, but you don't you know, put your fist down and say, all right, that's why we need to support XYZ policy and this and, and be adamantly against, you know, this particular candidate or whatever. And so I really appreciate that. And I think a lot of your readers probably do. I don't, I I can't speak for them except me, but, um, you know, one of the things you, you were talking about boundaries with, you know, being inside the Christian faith, libertarians deal with this too. You know, I think every community does, well, how, you know, what is a libertarian and you know, what, how far can you go? And so I think, what you had to say about, you know, the boundaries of, or pushing the boundaries of a theological tradition applies here. One thing that I think is probably consistent across, you know, for every Christian, because most Christians, I realize, you know, the Anabaptist tradition has a little less political opinion, but we all kind of want to use the Bible for our own political support, and... <laughs> um you know, yeah. I don't have any idea, honestly, where you stand politically. You don't have to announce it or anything like that. I don't, it doesn't matter. But I do know that you can speak to how do we avoid hijacking the words of Jesus? You know, for instance, the parable of the talents is often used to promote capitalism, or Matthew 25 is often used to promote social redistribution of wealth. I've heard Jim Wallace talk about that. But, you know, a lot of us are kind of unaware of how we misuse the Bible, or for that matter, misuse Jesus. So, you know, we can't completely avoid our biases, but how do we, how do we minimize those? I mean, where do you, what, what advice do you have? Well, I think it depends on the issue, perhaps, but generally speaking, I'm pretty much an advocate for if you're going to use the Bible for anything, and by the way, I think part of just the uh, character of the Bible is that there's an ambivalence that is open to different levels of interpretation. I, I don't I don't think there's just one right answer per text. I think the Bible's the history of the Christian church and Judaism sort of you know, you know kicks that idea to the curb pretty quickly. There have been very different kinds of ways of interpreting the Bible. But by and large, I think when people use the Bible as support for something, they're, what they're saying implicitly is, here's this text that says X. What that text meant back then is what it means now, and I'm telling you what that is, right? There, there is a presumption of what I'm reading and my understanding of it is consistent with the intention of the author and how the audience would have heard it. So I think a very important first step in trying to not abuse the Bible or just create it in your own image, so to speak, is to do the work of trying to understand how would this been how would this have been understood in that ancient time? What questions were the authors asking and addressing? It's sort of like I mean, you know, it's not politics, but it's sort of like Genesis one or Genesis two. Well, this is telling us literally what happened. Well, hold on. Let's go back to look at the ancient context. What were these stories designed to do? What can we expect from the authors to have said and to have understood and from their audience to have heard? You know, I think that that takes some of the charge out of, you know, the, the alleged usefulness of these texts for whatever issue I might want to talk about. Right. 
I mean, including things like, you know, you know, women in the church and, and, you know, slavery has been a big issue in the history of the church as well. Uh, the use of verses in a proof texting kind of simplistic way where that context seems to be consistent with our context. Here's the words. It sounds like it's speaking to us. Let's just use it instead of digging into, well, why would Paul say something like this? What's going on in this church? What's going on at this time? So I think, you know, all that is a rather long-winded way of saying, take seriously historical context and the intentionality of the writer in that context as best as we can determine. At least it sort of sobers us a little bit from using passages in in not only self-serving ways, but perhaps at the end of the day, very uninteresting ways compared to what the, the force of those things as they might have been originally intended. Well, it sounds like you're saying the Bible has a richer set of meanings than the first pass that we give it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's hard to hear for some because, you know, the Bible is God's love letter to me. I don't need interpretation. It's as it hits me is exactly what God wants. And I think that works for many things of, let's say, a personal spiritual value, but not grand pronouncements on the scale of history. So very quickly, we get to the historical problems of scripture that have to be addressed about original context. Well, and taking into the original context isn't just what is written in the text, but when was it published? To whom was it published? Right. You know, certain certain books, I mean, even books that we can think of today, if, you know, say George Orwell wrote 1984, if for some reason that book were written 100 years prior, we would we would probably treat it a little differently because we, right. we know the context in which that book was written in, right. you know, what decade it was written and, and, you know, that kind of thing. So... There's a lot of, you know, when it was published kind of, and I use the word published loosely to, you know, a little <laughs> anachronistically there, but I realized it wasn't quite the same. Um, so on one of your previous episodes of your podcast, you interviewed Walter Brueggemann. Mm-hmm. And I have read, I think, one, <clears throat> one or two of his books, and I read his books, and when he gets to talking about politics, and you talked about it on your podcast, Maybe you can help me figure something out here. Seems like most left-leaning theologians write and they speak on the Bible's anti-imperialist stream of thought. Right. Yet at the same time, they also tend to embrace policy prescriptions that, in in kind of our milieu, need an empire-level governing authority in order to operate. So we have Yahweh in the Old Testament acting against the pagan empires and their deities, and we have this, you know, uh, these scholars will point that out, and. We also have the whole welcoming the stranger, take care of your neighbor, you're your brother's keeper, and they will do this amazing job at being anti-empire, and then they'll advocate these policies prescriptions that need an imperial state to accomplish, you know, redistribution of wealth, making sure the wealthy don't have, you know, too much and so that everyone is taken care of in order to implement those ethics. And so I'm just thinking, what gives? Why is it that what I would consider left-leaning Politically, scholars have so much anti-state, anti-empire theology. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, I'm just riffing here because I want to probably think about these things a little bit more carefully. But I think there's a huge, huge difference between empire and government. Government is inevitable. Uh, that is one of the things about the Old Testament. Is kingship a good or bad idea? Well, it's a good idea if it knows its place. But the problem is that government usually collapses quickly into empire thinking, which is sort of this all 
all-encompassing, totalizing narrative about all of life and everything's about the state, right? So I can imagine, let's say, you know, the, the, the left-leaning scholars, when they talk about things like the redistribution of resources, they say that's not empire. That's what good government should do. Yeah, but my response to them, and I know I know you're not necessarily aligning with them in what you just said, but my response to them was, okay, fine, you want to take all the wealth of the billionaires, guess where that's going? That's going to bomb children in other countries. Uh-huh. That's not going to feed the poor. Right. You may want it to. You may have voted for the people who will advocate for that, but that's not what's happening. Right. And and I know that they would all say, well, yeah, but we are, we're against that, and I get that, but... It it is all going into the same pot, so to speak. And Practically not, speaking, that yeah. you, you you can't avoid. It's hard to avoid the trappings of empire. Oh, absolutely. You know, I, I guess that's it. when you have government, it's hard to avoid the trappings of empire, and that's why you know I think the Christians can be, as we should be, a prophetic voice, holding the power structures to account as best as we can. That can be done from the inside, but from the outside as well. Yeah. Um, and I, rather than getting wrapped up in it, but again, practically speaking, this is a minefield. I think <laughs> you know. I mean, just <laughs> that's that's an understatement. Yeah, you know. So I, I don't think these. I'm not trying to suggest simplistic answers, but no, I, yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I think there are plenty of things that Christians should be speaking up about now in terms of the treatment of people and how we look at other nations and and you know what it means to care for our own population our own citizens i think there are a lot of things that christians could stand up for and not simply be known by those people who are against abortion as important as that might be i'm just saying that it's yeah. you know there, there's much more going on in the world than that and um and be advocates of 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 positive social change, you know, and all that sort of stuff. Isn't there a danger, though, in whether I know that most left-leaning people and I am alongside them in this particular aspect of avoiding this Christian nation, I don't know what you you want to call it, a Christian nation moniker. What's that? Idolatry. (laughs) So, like, this moniker of a we need to be a Christian nation, I mean, is when someone says, like like Walter Brueggemann in the in your podcast episode, he talked about, you know, these are real people who are crossing the border. These are real families that are being torn apart by particular policies. And as a libertarian and a Christian, I am both I am for the free movement of people. When when you have a theologian saying, Well, we need to welcome the stranger and we need to take care of our neighbor, well, what about the neighbor who this is the conservative response to this? like a, the conservative Republican type response is, well, what about my literal neighbor who's right next door to me? Why do I, as a Christian who should love him, risk putting him in danger because we're allowing many immigrants to come over? Now, whether they think it's a terrorism threat or you know losing their job or whatever that may be, you know, which neighbor do we do we work? Well, you know, it gets a little dicey. And I guess mm-hmm. the the one thing that I think of is, well, if you advocate for things like the redistribution of wealth, and let's let's just assume for the moment that that's a biblical way of doing things, well, aren't you just asking America to be a Christian nation? And there aren't we're not made up of a whole bunch of Christians. Well, that's the other thing too. I mean, partly we have the reputation of being a Christian nation to most of the world, at least nominally. And maybe some people are concerned about that. But I, for me, the struggle has always been the extent to which. 
the let's say the morality directed at the followers of Jesus can be transposed onto any sort of a governmental system and whether we should expect people. But you see, that that's the difference between, I think, Christians being a prophetic voice for the treatment of people in a way that doesn't say, well, because we're a Christian nation, you need to act like this. Hmm. Right? There's a difference between a prophetic pronouncement and a vision. I, I mean, I do think, I don't know how you feel about this, I think if Martin Luther King Jr. was sort of like that, right? He was a prophetic voice calling for justice for people and holding the powers that be to account for why they're not doing that. Right. And he even had a prophetic lilt about him. You know, Mm -hmm. a lot of his sermons were singing and and most of the prophetic literature is poetic diction. It's not narrative. It's not lecture. It's song. And and, you know, I find that to be sort of an interesting parallel. But, um, you know, I I think I think, again, that's the role of the Christian. And uh, I I do think I I mean, I said this before and you agreed. I, I think this is so incredibly complicated but this is where theology touches the ground in terms of how we live. But I certainly think we have to move beyond lifting a verse, right, that that says something that we seem to think it says and then using that as a basis for justifying theologically why we do something. I think theology yeah. is much more complicated than that. I think libertarians, if if they have that language for it, they they fancy themselves as prophetic to the empire. And I think in 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 our context, the biggest thing we would be opposed to is the concentration of power. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think on a on a much more local level, the social justice warriors might be more effective and more consistent with their Christian faith uh, rather mm-hmm. than you know assembling in Washington, maybe assembling in all the capitals around the country, um, mm-hmm. getting local communities to get involved. I mean, yeah. there. You're right. There, governance is important. It's what. How does it become the state? And I guess we'll have to have you on for another podcast for that. Oh, for that yeah, well, I won't, yeah, that'll be real quick. A two minute <laughs> podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so before we wrap up, I have a question that you know that it's it's a little off topic, but um, you know, a few years ago, you did a video with NT Wright uh, for the BioLogos organization, mm-hmm. and it was about Genesis. And there's there's a lot to learn from it, but I just have to ask this. When you're in the room with NT Wright, do you have to take your shoes off? <laughs> no, he's not that kind of guy. <laughs> he's he's pretty down to earth. Did you feel compelled to? <laughs> like I feel no. like I would be totally like a teenage girl at a boy band concert if I were in the same room with him. No, I mean, you know, once you get to know the guy, he's just a regular guy. You know, he's just and I think that comes across when he speaks and when he writes too, but um, so no, I had no compulsion to do that, but it wasn't out of disrespect. It was just out of like, Hey, Hey Tom, <laughs> you want to talk about stuff? Yeah. Okay. Let's do that. Yeah, good. Let's talk about the stuff that everybody's talking about right now. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so what's coming up for you? Are you, uh, can you give us an insight into what's coming up in the podcast or new? I know you're working on a new book. Well, I think uh, who are we going to have on? We're going to have people like biblical scholars. I think Daniel Kirk may have been on just over the past couple of days on on our podcast. We have Ellen Davis coming, uh, Diana Butler Bass eventually, Jewish scholars. We've had uh, Ben Summer on. Mark Brettler is coming on. So we're we're trying to get a mix. Brian Zond 
is going to be on the podcast as well. We're trying to get a mixture of practitioners and theologians and biblical scholars yeah. talking about what they do. Yeah, we've promoted and, Brian's on quite a bit uh, on our yeah, website. Yeah, so so we'll, we'll see where that goes. You know, uh, we're going to have some set, uh, episodes. We've had one already on where it's just Jared and I talking to each other about specific topics. So we'll talk more, obviously, on that than we would in an interview. We're going to be uh, producing some like individual things, like I might talk for a half an hour, 45 minutes about the authorship of the Pentateuch or something like that. Like who wrote this stuff and how do we know? What are the questions that come up? Not lectures, but just sort of like monologues. <laughs> you know, how, how do you say that? It's it's not a, it's not a, an online lecture, but it's just just sort yeah. of talking and riffing about some of that stuff. So we're those are some of the things that are going to be coming up uh, probably in the next few months. How about a book? Well, I'm working on one. Uh, it's hard for me to sort of finalize even what it's about. I don't I don't have it down to a tweet size description yet, but it's about so it's sort of about things about the Christian faith and the Bible that I wish I had known 30 years ago and have sort of come to terms with now, but had I known them more back then, I think it would have made a difference. You could call it that book I should have written for Rachel and Doug. I know, <laughs> I could call it that. <laughs> so, I mean, things like, you know, the importance of people over propositions sometimes and how the, the people we meet and the effect they have on us are of more lasting importance than whether we've nailed down some ideas, things like that. Like I, I wish, I, I wish it had been more this than that. That that's that's sort of the vibe for the book, and I've got about twelve or thirteen issues right now, sort of mapped out that I'm thinking of working with. So, but but it, it's us. I'm glad you reminded me. I have to get back to that today. So, <laughs> <laughs> My oh, you thought right. you were gonna go golfing, huh? No, I don't do that. So. <laughs> Thanks for joining us at the podcast, Pete. It's been a pleasure having you with us. Yeah, that, that's it's been fun, Doug. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you'd like to reach out to us and ask a question or submit some feedback, you can reach us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us on Facebook, Twitter, and of course our website, libertarianchristians.com. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com. Libertarian Christian Podcast.